Welcome to QUT Exec Insights, brought to you by QUTX, professional and executive education for the real world. I'm your host, Kate Joyner. Today we're continu- continuing our cool QUT series, where I speak to some of my QUT colleagues who are at the cutting edge of research with real world implications. With me is adjunct professor David Flannery from the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences. David's work has not only real world, but out of this world implications. David recently received a prestigious grant for the Searching for Life on Mars on Earth project. This will deliver the most comprehensive investigation of Earth's oldest known river lake deposits in Western Australia, which is similar to the environment to be explored by NASA's Mars 2020. David came to QUT from NASA, where he was a Caltech postdoctoral scholar and a research scientist based at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He studied molecular evidence for ancient microbial metabolisms preserved in Earth's oldest known fossils and worked on the development of instruments that were later selected to fly on NASA's Mars 2020 rover missions. All really exciting things, which we'll get into in this conversation. They are really exciting things, David. It sounds like you're living a boyhood adventure. <laughs> but, but yeah, every now and again, I have to pinch myself, and yeah, I think I am living the dream. Boys own, boys own adventure in Mars. Yeah. So tell us about a little bit about your last week, because we, we were talking about the kind of. It's great to get out and about. So you're doing a few things Mars related. Yeah, no, it was really exciting to be on a plane for the first time since the beginning of the year. Um, but uh, I'm feeling a bit run down at the beginning of this week. I uh, had a really busy week last week. We were doing some filming in far north Queensland with the ABC, looking at analogue locations or the sorts of environments humans might survive on Mars. And at the same time, I was up really early on US time for an operational readiness test for the Perseverance rover mission. The Perseverance rover mission, yeah. So we'll have a look at that a little bit later on. But, um, yeah, so it, it does sound very um, boys' own adventure when we're talking about uh, – the um the yeah I suppose the endeavour I suppose to to explore life on Mars yeah. yes it uh, it really is and um I mean I, get, I I got into geology I think because I enjoyed being outside and and exploring and was always interested in what was over the next hill or across the ocean or even behind the fence in the backyard um so there's that and that is still a really um, important component of the sort of work we do to to figure out what we do with these rovers on Mars like Earth is our only guide to, to the mm, rocks on yeah, Mars yeah so Earth is our only guide so you've decided that uh, well, some of your research is focused on the West Australian desert, as I suppose an analogue. So mm. wh- why do we surf- search for life on Mars, either in far north Queensland or in Western Australia? What does yeah, it tell it, us? It may seem like a strange link, but believe it or not, in Australia, we've got most of the, the Earth's oldest well-preserved sedimentary rocks. And so when I say old, I mean billions of years old, uh, back when the Earth was inhabited solely by microbes. And so these are the sorts of rocks that we're looking at on Mars as well. Um, similarly aged, and we're looking for the same sorts of features, microbial fossils and similar environments that we have recorded in, in Western Australia. In Western Australia. So are they the actual oldest in, in Western Australia? Are they older places of Australia, older and newer? Or? There are older rocks elsewhere on Earth, but a lot of them, oh. because the Earth's a living planet and rocks get recycled in the process of plate tectonics, they get destroyed or at least heated up and cooked and changed, metamorphosed. But for whatever reason, in Western Australia, we have a chunk of the Earth's crust that's really been uh, lucky to survive the last three to four billion years unscathed. So in those rocks, we're looking for things that would um, to form a protocol so that we can uh, replicate that in with the exploration on on Mars. Is that have I got that, that, that roughly right? <laughs> yep, that would describe my own work. It would be oh, okay. trying to um, 
come up with exploration strategies, strategies to inform right. what happens with um, Mars rovers, particularly this upcoming mission. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of other things we can learn from studying old rocks on Earth and many other pathways for, for Australians um, who end up working on the exploration of Mars and other things after studying our old rocks in Australia. Our old rocks in Australia. Yeah. Mm. And is it the same in far north Queensland, those similar kinds of rocks? Far north Queensland actually is quite young, geologically speaking. Ah, okay. Australia is put together from west to east with the ah. oldest rocks in the west and the youngest in the east. But we have in far north Queensland a huge lava province, so an area where lots of magmas erupted onto the Earth's surface and flowed across the surface. And in some places we have features called lava tubes. They're huge cathedral-like caves that stretch for tens of kilometres underground. And we, we've seen similar features on Mars and also the Moon. And the, one of the hopes of international space agencies is that we might use them um, to help us explore those locations. Maybe humans could take refuge in them, for example. Maybe humans could take refuge. I think sometimes in far north Queensland, not even humans can stand living yeah, in far was, north it Queensland. Was, <laughs> it was not to mention the other issues. It was pretty hot out there. Oh, it was yeah. about 42 degrees. Yeah, and we're going through was, a heat wave. Yeah. Yeah, as, but, we, we, as we um, record, which is um, late November in yep. 2020. And it mm. was fittingly much nicer down in, in the lava tube, much cooler. Oh, there you go. So uh, what is needed to be able to work on a question like looking for evidence of life on Mars? So uh, imagine a huge amount of capability is required to, uh, for that limited time when we've got a space rover. Um, yeah, yeah. So what, yeah. what kinds of capabilities uh, need to go into that exercise? I guess first we need the, to understand the science question. So the science drives the whole thing. And at a place like NASA, science is in the front row seat of of all of this. But the science can only be done through the efforts of a huge team of really talented engineers and people who manage people and the bureaucracy that holds it all together. Um, But you need, obviously, it's very challenging to build the hardware and operate the hardware. And uh, the science is, is really important as well. So we've got um, lots of different countries um, involved uh, in that particular question. So obviously Australia, mm-hmm. um, and we've heard the US you know, through the, yep. the Mars rover. Um, so is it other countries involved in this quest as well for space? Yes, and NASA's obviously at the forefront. They're mm-hmm. the only space agency that's really been able to consistently land objects on the surface of Mars. Unfortunately, as an Australian, really the only option if you wanted to get into the exploration of space or building your own hardware and operating it somewhere beyond the earth, you had to leave Australia. Hopefully that'll change in the near future, but you'll find a lot of Australians uh, at NASA and our other space agencies doing this sort of work. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and obviously we've got another graduate as well. Um, so uh, her name is Abigail, isn't it? Abigail Orwood? Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, I used to work with Abby at uh, NASA JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. She's also a geology graduate, she, is that right? Yep, yeah, she arrived at NASA through almost the same pathway that I did, um, looking at old rocks we have on Earth as analogues for the sorts of rocks we're exploring on Mars. And believe it or not, that skill set's really in, in high demand um, at NASA and elsewhere. Mm, I can imagine. So um, as well as the, the NASA, the Mars rover um, exploratory ex- um, initiative, there's quite a lot of um, resources sort of directed to the space industry at the moment in Australia and internationally. So mm. when I was, I guess, re- um, researching for this particular interview, I saw quite a lot of different uh, kinds of initiatives and uh, Commonwealth money going into space exploration. So what's mm-hmm. fueling that particular interest at the moment? I think there's definitely a commercial interest in in space. There's an increasing understanding that having assets in space allow us to do everyday things on Earth. 
There's also, uh, because it's becoming easier, it's more efficient to explore space with better technology. Things get smaller and lighter and more capable and we have more autonomy and so on. We're seeing a lot of smaller missions to interesting locations in the solar system. We're seeing smaller players, nations smaller than Australia in terms of our sort of capacity and economic footprint, contributing instruments and participating in the exploration of deep space in cooperation with our much larger partners, NASA, for example. Mm. So um, that, that kind of, I think you've answered that question for me, which is why small countries as well as large countries want to be involved. So there is a, a significant commercial uh, gain to be had. Potentially, particularly Earth observation satellites. Um, but when it comes to the exploration of deep space where science drives everything, there is no economic case to go to Mars or, or anywhere else beyond the Earth-Moon system. It's really driven by the science. And if as a smaller player... Um, like Australia wants to get involved, we have to partner with our much larger friends overseas who have the experience, particularly because we're starting from almost scratch. We, have, we haven't had a space agency or any space industry for such a long time. We need to partner with those larger agencies, bring the talent back, learn how we can contribute. Most other nations that are of our size contribute in a specific way. They're really good at something. I think Canada's space agency with the logistics and, and the Canada arm or Denmark with their space-based cameras, uh, Norway, for example, is contributing a ground-penetrating radar to the Perseverance mission because they're great at looking through ice with those instruments in their home country. And smaller agencies really learn how to do something well and then participate by contributing that capability. So um, we know famously Elon Musk has got it, a, a bit of, a, I suppose, a, an urge to go into to Mars. So is that, uh, is that science-based, do you think, or, or purely commercial? I don't think it's either, to be honest. I'm a bit of a skeptic. I can't think of any economic or um, political, religious or scientific reason to have a human colony on Mars. It would be tremendously expensive. I can think of a lot of reasons why it's unlikely to happen. Yeah. Um, but uh, Elon's probably quite clever because he's in the, the market or in the um, business of making very large launch vehicles that have few applications other than sending things to, to Mars, for Mars, example. Yeah. So definitely so, he's in, in his interest to drum up. Interest. Interest, yeah. yeah. So we'll just watch this space with a bit of interest and a bit of scepticism. Yes. And meanwhile, there's lots of interesting missions happening robotically and probably mm. we'll have some human missions to Mars in the next few decades to get that science done. Um, but that, that, that will be very expensive and challenging. And it's really a different question and approach to the, to the idea of having a permanent human presence for, for whatever reason. And there are um, significant defence applications as well. So that was a big part of the strategic update 2020, I think, uh, the... Yep. Um, the yeah, so what, what, what interest does defence have? So that's the defence satellites and all those. I I'm speaking any, as a complete layperson here. Yes, definitely. Uh, we're all familiar with missiles that travel outside the Earth's atmosphere and observation capabilities that exist in the, in the space realm. That's sort of closer to Earth, though. But obviously there are, um, there are reasons you'd want to have a capability to be able to uh, put an asset on the moon or on Mars or perform complex activities in, in deep space. Um, definitely there's a strong interest from defence. Mm, uh, yes, yeah, so we'll watch that also with, with interest. And uh, So um, you're, you've said that uh, your, your interest, I suppose, in, in the research that you're conducting at the moment started when you were quite young as a, as a geologist or interested in rocks, I suppose. Is that right? Um, so how did you become interested in geology but also biology? Isn't that right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, then space exploration. So tell us yeah. your trajectory through all that. Well, space exploration was definitely an accident. I've always been interested in the natural world and uh, what was outside and, and geology and biology were interesting to me because once you start to understand how to interpret the, the rocks and the living things around you, 
you can read the earth like a, a book, really, and a whole new world of knowledge is opened up to you. And in terms of my own trajectory, I can't really offer any advice because I studied the things. I guess I was lucky enough to study the things that interested me as an undergraduate. And that uh, serendipitous path that was focused purely on or driven purely by curiosity ended up um, doing something interesting and satisfying, like working on similar problem on a different planet. But it was totally an accident. Mm, how did that accident happen? Well, I was studying... Uh, some old rocks in Western Australia, the rocks we've just been talking yeah, about. Rocks. Yeah, yeah those, the, those billion-year-old <laughs> rocks. Yeah, yeah these uh, two-and-a-half-billion-year-old lake and river environments and trying to piece together the history of life on a really early, almost an alien planet that we had at the time. And that was a PhD project I was doing in Australia. And towards the end of that, someone gave me a call early one morning and said, hey, um, heard from a friend that you're studying these old rocks and, and we've got this new mission to Mars that's coming up. Would you be interested in coming over to, to help us plan it as a postdoc? And of course I said, yes. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> yeah. how did they know to contact you? Because this would be of interest to other researchers. So how do you, how do people know that you're studying rocks in Western Australia? It's a pretty small world, uh, science in, the rock, in general, in the rock particularly in the rock <laughs> business, particularly something as esoteric as looking at microbial yeah. fossils. So everyone knows what rocks. everyone else is doing, is but, that right? Mm, yeah, you could say that, but definitely there's a small number of, of um, big names in the field mm. and a, a really small pool of, of students. Mm. Um, and obviously very few people are studying it to make money through resource exploration or extraction. Mm. And so it's quite a small pool, pool to choose from. Once your name's out there... Um, for you know, looking maybe for a, a postdoc position or something, mm. um, you might get snapped up. Because geology traditionally has been um, as a supply to the mining industry for the most part, hasn't it? Australia yeah. generates lots of really good geologists, and mm. some of them pivot to or from um, the paleobiology side of things, mm. the the academic fossil side of things. And we've, we've had a, a lot of Australians actually reach NASA through not just the. Uh, fossil side of um, old rocks on earth but also through remote sensing capabilities um, and oh, so there's a lot of capabilities there's a lot around of overlap them. you yeah. feel good at figuring out what rocks are made of from from space or from an aircraft in western australia because you're looking for a certain mineral um, to exploit you can also participate or help contribute something to the exploration of mars using similar technologies Sim- oh, so all the technologies that surround that exploration are of interest in and of themselves. The same technologies that we use to figure out what rocks are made of um, remotely and, and in situ when we're looking at them, um, we use them on Earth, we use them on Mars, we use them on the Moon. They're the same uh, concepts and capabilities. Mm-hmm. So have you had a desire yourself to actually go on one of those space explorations or is that a whole different well, set of capabilities? As an astronaut? As an astronaut, well, yeah. if you or my colleagues talk about such things. Yeah, because um, they do bring researchers along with them. They do. do. Yeah. It was actually only one astronaut who travelled to the moon who had any experience uh, in any background in science at all was a geologist on, oh. on the last mission. Yeah. Um, but that, I think that'll change in the near future. Um, mm. That said, if you became an astronaut or graduated as an astronaut 10 or 20 years ago, it would have been a very boring career. There's been no space shuttle. There yes, have been that's no right. missions It's been very anywhere. slow, hasn't it? It's yeah, been very since slow. the Challenger yeah. uh, disaster. Was, yeah. was that really one of the things that sort of halted the... the... There were two big um, catastrophes with the space shuttle, um, but it was also just... Um, we had the International Space Station, which was very successful, but there hasn't been a follow-on and there hasn't been a lot of interest in um, expanding that. 
and just really insufficient funding, particularly from NASA. Every new administration likes to announce a grand plan to go back to the moon or Mars, but they don't follow it up with enough funding to to get the job done. Mm. And we're talking kind of major funding, aren't we? Major funding. So the the Perseverance Mm. rover, for example, has a $2 billion price tag, managed to stay on budget and on schedule. It's a flagship mission, so the, the largest that NASA will send. The first human mission to Mars would cost probably at least $100 billion, probably more than that. Mm. So you could send 50 of these flagship missions for the, the price tag of a human mission. Tell us a little bit about um, the, your school and uh, the research from your school, so um, Earth and Atmospheric Sciences. So what kind of research questions are lighting them up at the moment? Well, at the moment, um, our atmospheric science researchers are looking into how uh, aerosol particles can transmit viruses, as you might. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're all in <laughs> the virus understand. business. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the, yeah. the, the atmosphere and the earth are one system. They're connected. And I work with the far end of the geological time scale, where we think about how the earth has created the atmosphere and vice versa, and how all the important elements are cycled, carbon and nitrogen and oxygen and so on, that keep the planet habitable. And a lot of our researchers in the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences look at the atmosphere today and try and figure out how that cycle is continuing and how we might be modifying it. Mm. So is that where your um, post this particular research grant that you've been funded for, is that where your research interests will head as well? We've had a couple of recent successes with grants. Um, one of them involves studying river and lake environments in northwestern Australia during the Perseverance rover mission to help guide the the, the mission and come up with better exploration strategies to more efficiently use our time. And we're also looking into how we can project geologists in the field using virtual reality. Ah, okay. It's a collaboration. So you don't have to go out to those hot hot parts of Western. Well, obviously, I can't travel to Mars at the moment. Actually, I'm quite happy to have my robotic (laughs) avatar do the work for me. Um, But it's also true that many parts of Australia, as you said, are quite remote. And it'd be great to have the capability to project ourselves virtually in those environments and Mm. discuss the geology, for example, from from our offices. So I can see you would have a lot of applications for mining as well as um, as space exploration, if you could check. Explore remotely uh, or, or virtually, should I, I should say. Mm. There is a huge and obvious and untapped crossover between space science and the hardware that goes to space and the sorts of things we do on Earth. Particularly in Australia, obviously we have a lot of experience and an interest in resource exploration and extraction, um, but there are many other crossovers and many examples that I'm sure all of our listeners are familiar with of technologies that were developed for space but which now we use on Earth, Teflon, for example, or Velcro and so on. I did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> it was uh, the, the Teflon that the astronauts used. <laughs> yeah, I think DuPont developed Teflon for some space-based application Asian and very and... quickly it was on everyone's yeah. pots and pans. Oh, excellent. Yeah. All right, well, we'll have to have you back when uh, you, we, well, maybe we'll have the avatar of you um, coming during, during the podcast. Yes, unfortunately we can't. It's hard to uh, show images, but perhaps after the Perseverance lands, we could discuss what's going on. What's going on? Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And what, what is actually some of the dates we could look forward to with Perseverance? What, what is its timeline? So mid-February, Perseverance will land. It's actually on its way, traveling oh, about wow. 100,000 kilometers an hour relative to the sun. So it will land in February and operate for the next two years in a place called Jezero Crater, looking for life and caching samples. Uh, we've also got a lot of other interesting things happening. There's a Chinese sample return mission to the moon, Japanese mission to an asteroid, um, bringing samples back, another Japanese mission bringing samples back from a moon around Mars all in the next couple of years. So watch this space. So we've got a lot to look forward to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was fascinating. Thank you so much, David, and um, and good luck with all that, uh, that uh, the study of rocks uh, in Western Australia and elsewhere. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks for joining us for this episode of QUT Exec Insights. If you would like more information about QUTX programs for you or your organisation, search QUTX, that's Q-U-T-E-X, and you will find our full range of professional and executive development programs. Thanks to Sue York for sound recording and editing. See you next time.